this is episode one of the Edgework podcast. Now, I've been hesitant to start because, uh, you know, when you start something new, particularly something as nuanced and technical and uh, creative as podcasting, it, you know, you're, you're going to start off pretty bad at it. You're not, you're not going to be good. Uh, you tend to get better over time. Um, but, I, you know, deciding where the initial bar is, like where's that first hurdle of quality, like how long do you actually have to prepare, it's tough. Um, and what I was thinking about is uh, I was recalling, so, so the Joe Rogan podcast is the first podcast I ever listened to. Uh, it's, it's still more or less my favorite. Um, it's really great stuff. And uh, one time I, I decided to go all the way back to the beginning and just start, start at the beginning and watch all of the podcasts of which there are, I don't even know, maybe a thousand or something at this point. Uh, so I went back to the first one. And uh, if anybody's out there and, and you want to get into podcasting, but you're not sure if, you're can, if you can do it, if you can hit the, the necessary quality, just go back and watch the original Joe Rogan podcasts. They are, I would say, putting it conservatively would be that they are unrefined. Uh, it's 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 really great to see. It's kind of inspirational because now it's it's one of the greatest uh, pieces of media uh, in my life that I experience on a regular basis. And when it started off, it was almost incomprehensible, you know, because they were just they were just jumping in. Uh, they were just kind of kind of going for it, and they weren't worried about getting it right immediately. They weren't worried about being polished. Uh, they just kind of went with it, and they and they iterated over. Uh, the experience, and they just kind of kept going, and now it's it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's one of the most popular podcasts in the world, I think. Certainly the most popular podcast in my apartment. Uh, so yeah, just jump in. You know, if it's if it's something that you that that you plan on doing continuously for a while, it doesn't matter how you start, because you're you're gonna start considerably worse than than where you end up. Uh, I think that's pretty much guaranteed. Now, this podcast is called Edge Work. Um, edge Work, I don't have the definition in front of me because I'm unprepared. YOLO. Uh, uh, but Edge Work is, is basically is sort of what it sounds like. It's, it's uh, radical or unusual behavior, uh, behavior or thought that's, that's not generally acceptable in, in polite society. And I think as a theme, this is the sort of thing I'm going to come back to. I'm not going to try to design the podcast to, to stick strictly to only things on the edge of, of acceptable thought and behavior. Uh, I think that would be too limiting. And it, wouldn't, it would kind of get uninteresting, I think, after a while. Um, but the sorts of things that interest me are things that are either taboo or unusual or new or different or things that are kind of normal but haven't been thought about in a certain way or maybe there's a certain way to make connections between different ideas that would be considered unusual. So I think, you know, broadly speaking, we're, we're going we're gonna to come back to the edge, I think, just as a matter of course. Uh, to some extent, it'll also inform how I choose guests. Um, not to say that you have to be a weirdo to get on the show, but being a weirdo probably will help, I think, in the long run. Um, so, yeah. Uh, there's a couple topics that I thought would be interesting to start with. You know, I listened to the Sam Harris podcast, Waking Up, and my favorite Sam Harris episodes are the AMA episodes, the Ask Me Anything episodes. I don't know where he gets the questions from. I think he says he, he takes a bunch of questions he gets on Twitter and just kind of conglomerates them um, and anonymizes them. But those are my favorite Sam, Sam Harris uh, podcast episodes, Waking Up episodes, because 
he kind of takes questions from his listeners that are relevant uh, both to the listeners and to him because these are his fans, you know, these are people who follow his show, uh, and he answers them. And he doesn't really limit himself in terms of length. He just kind of goes on about things where appropriate. Some, some answers are, are, are brief, more succinct. Uh, but I really like those. So I, I would like to do uh, a lot of that. Now, I can't guarantee I'm as interesting as Sam Harris, and, and without having any audience yet to speak of, given that this is my first podcast, uh, I can't say that there's a particular style or theme of, of the things that, that I would be answering at the outset, or that I could even get uh, questions. But in an experiment yesterday, or possibly the day before, I don't remember, uh, I went on Reddit, created an account, went to a casual AMA subreddit, and just said, hey, I'm starting a podcast, and I would like uh, some questions. And I got some. Uh, I also listed some of the topics that I would like to talk about. Um, martial arts, sex, the occult, philosophy. I, I have a feeling we're going to come back to philosophy a lot. Um, and, you know, I got, I got not a huge response, but there was some support there. Uh, there were some interesting questions. Uh, one of the one of the questions was, "What is the purpose of art?" And I thought that was really interesting. So, the way that we currently uh, categorize the the main disciplines in philosophy, there are there are five that, that we hear about. And I don't I won't say that I can necessarily vouch for this this way of categorizing things. I will say that there's overlap between them and. Some have even postulated that they might all be connected. I think Spinoza uh, had written uh, a book called Ethics that, in a, in a way, I think did did a lot to to unite some of these some of these fields. First, I'll name the fields, then I'll loop back to Spinoza, then I'll loop back to the purpose of art. So the fields are, and I always forget one or two, but let's see if I can get them all. We have metaphysics, ethics, logic. Uh, aesthetics and what am I missing anyway I'll come back to that so aesthetics is the field that deals with uh, beauty questions like what what is beauty right what is art what makes something artistic or, or what makes good art how do we judge uh, what is aesthetically pleasing now to some extent that that's a scientific question you know for example I've, I've heard some studies saying that what we find aesthetically pleasing in someone else, one of the things, one of the big things, maybe the biggest thing, is symmetry in, in facial structure. Um, now, this was, this was a scientific endeavor. This was a study that was done. I'm not sure of the methodology. Uh, frankly, I'm not sure I, I am sold on those results just yet, although, to be fair, I haven't done the research. Uh, but the point is, this was uh, answering the same question in a less philosophical way. This was a scientific approach to what is beauty and apparently symmetry was the answer right um now that's not a contradiction to have uh, both a philosophical and a scientific approach to the same question in fact until fairly recently i think uh, sometime in the last couple hundred years uh philosophy and science were the same thing and fundamentally they are the same thing they're 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 both systems or or uh, methods or approaches to, to trying to figure out the world uh, and ourselves, and our relationship to the world. Um, but yeah, like you know, scientists—the the, the phrase "scientist" until until the last maybe it was 150 years—I don't, I don't remember. But 
there was no such thing as a scientist, or at least uh, not with, with that terminology. There were philosophers, and there were a subset of philosophers called natural philosophers. And these were philosophers who specialized in studying nature, right? The, the natural world, whether that's physics or chemistry or botany or biology or anything else, uh, medicine. So now, uh, these, these people are called scientists, and the ones who do more abstract analysis of the world are called philosophers, right? Which, which is, you know, the, the terminology both matters and doesn't matter. Um, but that's a whole separate thing. Maybe we can have an episode on the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and the origin of the phrase or the term philosophy. Uh, just briefly, since I mentioned Sapir-Whorf, I'll, I'll just give a quick summary of, of what that is. And I'm no specialist in linguistics, so I could be getting this more or less wrong. Uh, but the essential idea is that language uh, dictates perception to greater or lesser extent. Um, the, the weak interpretation or the soft interpretation says that to some extent, language will dictate what a person thinks, that, that the, th the thoughts we have are confined to the language that we have to describe our thoughts. So in some sense, we're beholden to previous generations and the natural organic progression of language as it evolves culturally uh, to inform our thought. And I think that's true to, to a limited extent. Then you have the strong interpretation, which says that we're completely uh, stuck on language, that we're, we're totally limited by, by the use of language, that we just can't think outside of the language box, as it were. Now, that seems so, so wrong to me that I, I, I'm not sure I understand it correctly. So, I, so before I, I go too far into that, I'll go back and do some research, because I just... I just don't, I don't see any defense of that idea that's possible. So it could be that I'm just missing, missing the point of it or something. Um, as an example that I often use, uh, I use the example, a lot of people have a phenomenon where if you see somebody trip and fall down, you laugh, right? You find it funny. That's sort of a natural, reflexive, slapstick humor. Uh, we don't have a word for that. I just described it in, in a couple dozen words. Um, but in Germany, that's called Schadenfreude. Right, so they have a word for it. It's when you laugh at somebody else's misfortune. It's Schadenfreude. Now you didn't need that word to know what I was talking about. Yeah, I was able to describe it to you uh, without the need of the specific word. You could point out that I used other words to describe it, but I, I think that's getting a little, a little too deep in the weeds. Point being, you can have a thought that there isn't a word for. Uh, back to Spinoza. So in ethics, I believe, and again, it's been a while since I read the book, but if I remember correctly, the idea was uh, to expound upon the mind of God, right? To, to write a book that, if I remember correctly, is uh, an axiomatic progression of ideas that supposedly create a coherent view of, of God and, and the world and, and the relationship between the two. Uh, one of the key ideas there is that the book's called Ethics, and it's about the mind of God and, and the structure of the universe, essentially, which are largely metaphysical questions, if not religious. So, why is it called Ethics? Well, the idea is, if the universe is a manifestation of something non-physical, 
and that non-physical thing is more primordial than the physical, then you could say, for lack of a better word, that it's divine. Even if you're not religious, we could use that as a filler word, meaning uh, something that is non-physical and more fundamental than the physical, something preeminent to, to the, the physical world. So we'll just call that divinity. Uh, if that is a thing, that means there is some underlying rationality to the world that, that's, that's again, uh, uh, the, that the physical world is subordinate to. If that is the case, then the physical world is bound by something more like principles than by simple uh, physical properties, right? So if we're trying to determine correct behavior, what is, what is right behavior, uh, and if there is something that is more fundamental than the physical world, then I think, uh, given that the physical world doesn't really provide us many answers in terms of, of morality, I think it makes sense to plug straight into the, to the fundamental, whatever that is, be that spiritual or the mind of God or, or what have you. Uh, but as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing I don't have a great grasp of it. It's, it's a big topic, so I'll, I'll go back to that one later. Uh, getting back to the purpose of art, I've done zero research on this. I haven't really, I thought about it for a few seconds, uh, so we're just going to jump in and see where it goes. One of the things I find interesting is that when you think about the purpose of art, does that mean the purpose of creating art or the purpose of uh, observing art or sort of receiving art as, as the audience? Um, and I think that those are, are different. Of course, uh, one is primarily a matter of expression and one is primarily a matter of, uh, I suppose, reception or uh, sensory passivity. You know? uh, but I also think there's going to be some overlap. So the overlap, I think, in both cases is that art, whether it's music or, or anything else, let's take music ad, as an example. Music can be analyzed scientifically, mathematically, and, and, and lots of other fancy ways, but fundamentally it's, it's something that is impractical in, in terms of, of normal day-to-day -day activities. So if I get up and bathe and go to work, I, I'm operating my car, I'm using a keyboard, I'm doing lots of things that involve dexterity and practice and some, some degree of skill or experience, but they're all towards practical aims. None of these are, are things I'm doing for fun or for pleasure or for expression. Uh, although one could say that something like style in clothing or, or personal grooming or car color or something might, might come into play and maybe that's aesthetics. Uh, but the point being, when I participate in a musical production, when I, when I make music, I'm doing it to express myself. I'm doing it because there's a feeling that I have in me that I'd like to, to, to sort of transmogrify or sublimate to something that can be experienced by other people or even just something that I can experience differently. So rather than just a feeling inside, I can hear it as notes when I play guitar or sing or something. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of literally and figuratively amplifying what's already going on inside me. Uh, and then when I do that for someone else, uh, for an audience, then there's even more purpose there. Uh, for example, it, it's difficult for me. I don't, I don't like for people to hear me perform. Uh, I find it stressful, you know, but I do it anyway. And I think that the, the purpose of that is, is getting out of one's comfort zone, whereas the purpose of, of creating and comp and composing and performing the music is, is more a matter of adding a, a degree of elegance that helps me understand my own internal states, I think, by abstracting them and, and giving them form. Uh, 
and I think that receiving art as, as the observer or as the audience is I mean on a, on, a, on a basic level it's a visceral pleasure you know I mean it's just something that people people enjoy without having to think about why they enjoy it like if somebody has their favorite genre of music or, or several genres of music if you ask them why they could give you reasons but I think it would be to some extent disingenuous not that they would intentionally be deceptive about it but uh, people just like what they like to, to a large extent and maybe there are traits within the music that they identify with or, or that they can explain to you and explain why they like them but more or less they, they just like them right and I think it has to do with a, an internal stirring that you get when you, when you experience a, an art form that resonates with you um, in fact if I'm not mistaken the word emotion uh, I think comes from the same root word as, as motion and it's, it's the, the sensation of things moving inside you. Um, your, your body and your emotions are, are very closely related. Some would theorize that your, your emotions begin and end in your body, and, and your mind just experience them, experiences them, uh, and, and, and in a somewhat false way. Um, that's a whole different topic. Uh, so the purpose of art, yeah, it's, it's a big one. It's a big one. And then, you know, it brings up questions of things like elegance. So in, in programming, I've done a small amount of, of computer programming. I'm certainly not uh, an expert. But one of, one of the, the key ideas in programming is, is elegance. And it has a fairly specific meaning. It, it essentially means the more elegant your code, the more simple and efficient and performant. So you can write two separate pieces of code that do the exact same thing, but one of them could do it in a very brief and clear way that is quick to read and understand if you were to read the code, uh, if you understand programming well enough to read the code, uh, and, and that does what it's supposed to do without a lot of extraneous fanfare. And then the other example could be something much more circuitous and, and confusing probably redundant. If you have a lot of repetition, then your code is not generally elegant, uh, unless you have good reason for the repetition, which you probably don't. Um, it's called spaghetti code, the code that kind of goes all over the place. And it gets to where it's meant to be, but it does it in a very inefficient and, and arguably ugly way. Uh, and, and there's a certain amount of displeasure that comes with that. There, there's something called code smell that comes up when you have code that kind of does what it's supposed to do, but but in a way that's not perfect. It starts to stink. That's, that's the, the terminology used. Um, now, I wouldn't say that writing code is art, but I would say it can be. Uh, at what point it becomes art is a pretty big question. So if I have a program that I've written with no sense of creativity and no intent to create anything resembling art, it just does what it's supposed to do, and then I, I refactor it, now, refactoring is when you take code and you change it to make the code better without changing its outcome. So it would be like taking spaghetti code and making it more elegant, for example. You can refactor it without changing the end result. Uh, you just sort of make it smoother. Um, what was I saying? So if I, if I take this code and I, and I refactor it, at a certain point, I, I, could, I could bring aesthetics into it. Uh, for example... Um, uh, the visual layout of code matters. If you're a programmer, what code looks like, or at least for me it matters, 
if I look at something and I can see the structure and it's not too long and, and, and messy and the different sections are, are structured in a way that I can see that there was rational thought behind it, uh, that makes it easier to comprehend and, and work with. And it also makes refactoring much easier. Now this is a practical concern, but I think it's also an aesthetic concern because if nothing else, I could use my, my initial sense of looking at code within a second and decide whether it's pleasing enough visually to make me feel like it's well structured and well thought out. Now is that aesthetics? Is that art? Are we talking about art now? I don't know. If I write code to look a certain way, if I write it in, this, in the structure of a haiku or something, which generally wouldn't be possible, but just go with the analogy, uh, then I'm writing code still to, to achieve a purpose in the end, but I'm doing it in a way that I want it to be pleasurable to look at. So what is art, right? Now, I have a fairly simple answer to, to what is art that I, I think works. I know it's something that you can spend a lot of time digging into abstractions. Uh, you could probably find a lot of different answers. A lot of different people would have a lot to say about it. But I think for me, if somebody thinks that they have produced art, then that is art. There, there can't be an objective definition of art. Um, I think that if you see something and think it's art... That's not really the same. Uh, I think that the intent of the creator is probably the thing that determines whether something is or is not art. Uh, it's, not, it's not really about how it's perceived. Um, it's about what was intended. So two different ways to look at that. You could take some abstract art. Like I went to, where was it? A few years ago, I was in a museum. I think it was the MoMA. And... I was in the modern art section, and, uh, you know, I would never condemn an entire school of art or, or movement or era or, or whatever, but a lot of the modern art that I see I, f I find unimpressive, um, maybe just because it takes a different type of, of, of observer to, to get it. It's, it's like, uh, you know... Maybe this is overselling it and giving a little too much credit, but it's like if I have a really good wine that's really good by like professional standards and, and abstract, uh, sophisticated standards, but I don't like the taste of it, that's, that doesn't mean it's bad wine. It just means I don't like the taste of it, right? It may be objectively, if, there, if there's an objective way to measure wine, maybe it's great wine. I just don't like it. And I think that's valid. So modern art, there's a lot of it that I, that I think is kind of silly. Um, there's a lot of more traditional art that, I, that I'm not a big fan of either, but when I look at it, I can at least see the craftsmanship and the skill and the refinement of technique. Now, one could argue that those are actually not artistic traits. Those are, those are a technician's traits. That's the work of a technician. It's, an, it's a, a highly engineered painting, one, one that, that you can tell was the product of decades of practice on the part of the artist. If what I like about it is the technical skill, and I don't like the overall impression or, or I don't get the point of it, then am I even looking at it as art? I don't know. But the point is, uh, I saw some silly modern art uh, productions. There was one, I went in this room, enormous room, probably 20 or 30 foot ceilings, um, maybe 30 by 30 feet, big room, and the whole thing was empty. And there was a ceiling fan hanging from the ceiling from a really long rope and ju just sort of swinging around on its cord. And that was that was it. That was the uh, that was the installation. You know, maybe there's a point there. Um, 
I'm sure there is, maybe, probably, but it's kind of silly. But if the person who created it was under the impression that they were creating art, then they were creating art, right? Now, uh, another way to look at it is I, I, I sometimes have come across something that looks like art but isn't. Like, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that can... Okay, so photography. There are photographers who specialize in photographing things as they are, something like an industrial landscape or, or spilled paint or whatever it might be. Uh, they are finding things that, that you could say are beauty. You could say they're aesthetically beautiful or that they have a, an element of, of art to them. But in those cases, I would say while the, while the photograph may be considered art to the extent that the phot- photographer is an artist, I think that 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 subject matter, if you're standing there looking at it, and it's something that just incidentally occurred without a a directed hand uh, aiming to produce art, then it's not art. It's something that has some of the qualities and traits that we associate with beauty. Uh, For example, a person might be extremely symmetrical, and if we can say reasonably, which I'm not confident of, but if we could say reasonably that symmetry is a part of, of, of beauty, then we could say that that person has elements of beauty and has elements that are associated with uh, high aesthetic appeal. But they're not art. Unless, of course, you're a creationist. In which case, maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, so, the purpose of art. It's kind of a long answer, and I don't think I actually answered the question at all. But it was uh, interesting. It was an interesting topic. Uh, so thank you to whoever asked that that same person also talked about um, flying and and the feeling of new places I think that's how they put it Um, this is an interesting one flying first of all it's just it's mind-boggling sitting in 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 an airplane every every time I fly I'm just amazed somewhat terrified but just amazed especially after a couple hours in the air you know second or third hour drinking a beer looking out the window it's just it just never ceases to amaze me. I mean, it's it's like it's like a roller coaster, but not. You know, it's like it's some really thrilling, crazy stuff that we're bizarrely accustomed to, and that is bizarrely safe and mundane. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. As far as the feeling of new places, um, this is a, this is an interesting one for me because I am planning to uh, travel soon and for a long time. I'm thinking of, there's a growing trend of what's called, uh, I think it's digital nomadism. So I'm thinking of being a a digital nomad, for lack of a better word, meaning that my job lets me work remotely uh, from from any location, so as long as there's internet access. So I'm thinking about just hitting the road, you know, Uh, getting rid of my apartment, getting rid of as many physical goods as I can, putting whatever's left in storage, and just getting, you know, like a a carry-on and a backpack and just living out of a, a suitcase, basically, for a while. Uh, I don't really know how long, but um, I think my idea, what I'd really like to do is spend like a few months at a time in different places, maybe a couple weeks, or if, it's, if I go places where there's a, a cluster of other places I can get to quickly, then maybe like a week, and then, and then you know, go, go a ways maybe hop around between different countries in, in Asia that are closely situated, or, or Europe. I've never actually been. I've, I've never been out of North America. I've been to Montreal, but uh, other than that, just, just the States. And I haven't even been to that many of the States. I've never been to California, for crying out loud. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Uh, 
Um, so yeah, the feeling of new places. It's it's gonna be. It's gonna be interesting to see new places. Um, it's it it is funny. You know, every time I touch down in New York, I, I live in New York right now. I'm from Florida originally, but every time I've come to New York, regardless of how I felt on the flight, as soon as I'm down hitting the runway, there's just something in the air that just feels there's like a spark to New York. There's something magical about it. There really is like a like a feeling, and uh, like LaGuardia, the airport. I mean, it's. It's not the most beautiful airport in the world, but there, there's something distinctly pleasurable about about you know getting off the plane and and getting my luggage and finding a cab. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I spent a week in Montreal, and uh, really loved it. I, I I like Canada a lot, or Montreal. I've never been out of Montreal in Canada, except to a retreat in the woods, but that doesn't count. Um, but one of the things is after a week there, I, I had, I had developed the habit of like hugging people and smiling and there's just this pleasantness, you know, and I hate to, to stereotype, even positive stereotypes are not necessarily great, but you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for Canadian culture and, and, and sort of the, the more warm and, uh, and loving vibe. Uh, and what was interesting is when I got back, I flew from Montreal to New York. This is before I lived here. Uh, got off the plane, got in a cab, and, and outside, just getting in the cab, there were there were people like the the person I don't know what they're called. The person who directs you to a particular cab was in an argument with somebody. I think it was one of the cab drivers. They're yelling at each other. I don't know what language they were speaking. It was may, maybe several languages. Uh, it's very aggressive. I just got in the cab. Uh, the the guy just hit me with the door as I was getting in, just slammed the door on me like I, I wasn't even in. And he's just like, and then he's hitting the cab. The cab drives off. Everything's super aggressive. The cab driver can't figure out where to go. I give him the address. He doesn't know how to get there. He's asking me to use GPS on my phone. And he gets annoyed with me that, I, that I'm not going to use GPS on my phone to tell him where to go. Uh, and then he uses his own GPS, you know, of course. Uh reminded me of the first time I visited New York on the way to the airport my cab driver uh was having some kind of nonverbal dispute with another cab on the on the on the bridge and uh sideswiped him it seemed like he did it on purpose I couldn't really tell um but hit him I mean we were doing like 50 55 miles an hour that was a little scary it didn't seem to phase him at all point being New York you know these are stereotypical New York stories aggressive cab drivers you know um, but they're true. The point is, the feeling of a new place. Going from Montreal to New York was such a culture shock. And it also was interesting because when I got to where I was staying with, with my friends and, uh, and I gave them big hugs. And then afterward, I realized that was kind of... It was strange because I, had, I don't think I had ever hugged either one of them in my life. And one of them I've known for 20 years or 20, 22 years, I think, at this point. I'm pretty sure that's the only time I've ever hugged him, you know, because it's just, I guess it's an American thing or, or whatever it is. It just never occurred to us to hug one another. But then after a week in Montreal, it was just instinct for me. So I think where you spend time matters a lot in, in, in terms of how you interact with people and what's normal to you, even when it comes down to something as simple as, as physical affection. So... You know, you, you, I guess you could make a case, and I love New York, I'm certainly not denigrating New York, but you could possibly make a case that it can make you a bit more cold, possibly more aggressive, 
whereas Montreal perhaps would would make you uh, a bit warmer and and softer in, in a good way. Uh, I don't know, but um, those are a couple places with with different feels. Although there's a lot of uh, similarity in the ways they feel as well. Parts of Montreal feel like parts of Brooklyn, um, so or vice versa. Uh, let's see, what else was there on the agenda? I didn't bother actually looking at the agenda before starting this recording because, you know, you gotta just jump in, like I was saying. Um, pranks. Somebody had, somebody had asked, are pranks good or bad, I think? Sort of the, the ethics of pranks, pranking someone, like practical jokes. Personally, I hate pranks. Uh... If you're ever in a position where you're thinking about pranking me and you're not sure if you should, I'll answer that for you. You should not. Uh, I will never trust you again, and it will it'll end our friendship. Not really. Just kidding. But don't prank me. Uh, what's interesting is I have a friend who, who loves being pranked and pranking other people, which is just so bizarre. I understand the, the, the pleasure in pranking someone else. I mean, I don't get it on a personal level, but I understand that that's a thing and whatever. Yeah, I guess it's fun to s- some people, sadists. But uh, enjoying being pranked, just super weird, super strange. Like it's, that's like saying I I like it when somebody tricks me for their own amusement. You know, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre. So in terms of the ethics of pranking, I would say that unless you know someone likes being pranked, you know, you probably shouldn't prank them, right? Because you could be causing them actual distress uh, if you're not sure, or if you know they don't like being pranked, then leave them alone, crying out loud. Uh, so, back in the day, I had, uh, I had started planning this podcast a few years ago, and was, it was just kind of slow to, to get it moving, and I was thinking about, uh, abstraction. I was thinking, using abstraction as the key theme or, or concept of the podcast, just taking different topics and abstracting them, uh, basically breaking them down to principles and, and, and taking specific cases and figuring out what are the generalities that apply and then talking about those. I find that to be very interesting. It's, it's how I think about things in general. That's how I sometimes converse about things, although that can get confusing when you're in a casual conversation and you start abstracting things into principles. Um, but I think it makes for good podcast fodder. So I was considering uh, making that the, the, the point of, of this show for a while. Um, I, I think edge work is, is a bit catchier and a, and a bit more open-ended. But uh, let's talk about abstractions a little bit. So martial arts, very interesting topic. I uh, have been meaning to get back into martial arts, specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing. Those are two martial arts I'd like to learn a lot more about. Um, And I'll tell you why. So, if you don't know much about martial arts, or if you think you know a lot about martial arts but actually don't, you, you may have noticed that a lot of people will give you very strong opinions about why their style of martial art is the best one, right? And in the back of your mind, you're thinking none of this really works in street fights. Everybody has reasons why their style is the best, but nobody knows what they're talking about. You know, doing something in a gym versus on the street is very different, etc. And 
in many ways you're right. So the reason I came around to the conclusion that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing are two things I need to learn from a self-defense perspective, also just for fun. Uh, when I was a kid, I studied Kung Fu and a little bit of Tai Chi and a very small amount of Bagua. Uh, these are all Chinese martial arts. Um, these were very traditional. The, the Kung Fu was a style called Mai Zhong Lahorn, which means uh, Lost Trail Deceptive Foot. It was a northern Shaolin style. Uh, the Tai Chi style was Wu, Wu style. Um, and the Bagua, I don't know if there was a particular style of Bagua. I only did a couple days of that, but it was very interesting. Um, and one of the things that I heard a lot as a kid studying Kung Fu was one of the reasons Kung Fu is so effective versus, for example, karate, is that in, in karate you have a lot of right angles and straight lines. And in Kung Fu you have a lot of big circular movements that generate more momentum and are harder to see coming for your opponent. Um, which I thought was was interesting, and it made a lot of sense. Yeah, like uh, certainly big circles versus straight lines and right angles, yeah, the big circles are going to win. Uh, then one day, I was talking to somebody about karate, and he, he was a karate guy, and he was saying, you know what's, what's so great about karate is that it's a bunch of straight lines and right angles. It, it preserves energy. It doesn't waste energy like in Kung Fu. It's not about acrobatics and big circles. It's about just efficient transfer power in a short align as possible with with efficiency of movement and I'm like well that's interesting because that makes a lot of sense too <laughs> right so both the circular approach and the straight line approach they, both of those explanations made sense to me and, and I realized that I don't have any idea what I'm talking about you know that that's what it comes down to is anybody could come up with any style and, and if you don't know a lot from from experience about fighting uh, through some kind of some some kind of scientifically rigorous or, or academic or principled approach, then you might be fooled easily, and you might fool yourself easily. So I stopped everything, and I and I took a step back. This is like my mid twenties. I hadn't been practicing uh, actively anyway, but so I took a step back and, and and decided to to look objectively and try to figure out what is the most effective martial art, because I realized I didn't actually know. I had no idea. So I did this a couple different ways. Uh, one was I looked through just hundreds of, of videos of uh, street fights on YouTube. I just went to YouTube and just found street fights and tried to find which of these street fights were participants uh, that had studied a particular style of fighting. And I found uh, that boxers did very, very well. Even I found older, you know, sort of senior citizen boxers who had retired from boxing maybe decades earlier uh, when mugged on the street, caught by security camera, we're just knocking out these 20-year-old assailants, you know. Uh, boxers do, do well in street fights. Where they don't do as well a lot of the time is on the ground. Street, a lot of fights end up on the ground. You'll hear, you'll hear figures like 90% of fights end up on the ground. I don't know if that's true. Numbers get thrown around a lot. But certainly a lot of fights end up on the ground. Uh, it's easy to get tangled up and fall down. Uh, now on the ground, it's... it's it's kind of a different story. If you're a boxer and you're fighting someone who's not a good ground fighter, then you're probably also going to do well on the ground. Sure, why not? But um, otherwise, it's pretty much up to grapplers. And this is where Brazilian jiu-jitsu comes in. So jiu-jitsu fighters also do very well in street fights. If they can avoid getting knocked out by the punchers, you know, which, which is fairly straightforward if you, if you study it enough, uh, 
avoid getting knocked out long enough to take a fight to the ground, and then you grapple, you neutralize a lot of the striking ability of your opponent, and you attack joints, or you go for chokes to choke the person unconscious. Uh, so long story short, the two most effective styles that I saw in street fights were Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and boxing. So then I started taking a look at mixed martial arts, because, I mean, this is like a, this is like a laboratory for studying the martial arts to see what really is the most effective. And if you start with the UFC, and I think it was 93, you had lots of different styles. You had, you had kung fu, boxing, sumo wrestling, uh, French savat kickboxing, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You had all kinds of stuff. And this was kind of the first experiment like this. There were also no weight classes, no time limits, and no rules. Although, from what I hear, there were some agreements backstage of, of no biting and no eye gouging. I don't think those were official rules, but the fighters sort of agreed, although they didn't always follow their own agreements. But things like hair pulling, groin strikes, these were totally fine. There, there, was, no, there was no rule against any of these things, and they, and they happened regularly. And again, no weight classes, so you would see people with multiple hundred-pound weight disadvantages at times. Um, long story short, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was very clearly the winner. Uh, Hoist Gracie was was the winner for the first, I think, four or five until they introduced time limits or rounds or something like that. Uh, long story short, there's a reason you don't see Kung Fu fighters winning in the UFC very often. You know, you do see people who have some Kung Fu experience or karate experience or, or whatever it might be uh, or even people who are experts in, the, in those, uh, those styles. But by and large, the people who succeed in the UFC are people who study basically five main styles. Boxing, Muay Thai, which is uh, Thai kickboxing, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and Judo. Judo is, is about throws. It's basically a style about takedowns. There is some groundwork as well. There's a lot of overlap with jiu-jitsu, they're, they're very closely related, but judo is mostly about takedowns. Uh, now, you have to ask at some point, what makes these styles so effective? And I, I think this is where the abstraction comes in, because you can figure out the principles that these styles have in common. And I think the most important principle that they all have in common is that the techniques that you learn in these styles, you have to practice at full speed and full strength against a fully resisting opponent. That, that is very important. When I was doing Kung Fu or Tai Chi or whatever, there was not a lot of resistance. Even when we were, when we were sparring, it was point sparring, where if somebody got one, like you touched my helmet with your gloves, so we stop, somebody records the point, we separate, then we resume. Not at all like a normal fight, but in addition to that, there's no executing a move against a bunch of resistance, you know? Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is very much a matter of, of forcing moves through, you know, strategy and good body mechanics, but it's, it, you're, you're doing it against somebody who's trying to stop you actively. And it's very difficult. It's very tiring. Uh, the conditioning that you get from Jiu-Jitsu is outstanding. But long story short, these moves are not theoretical. These are things that you've done against people who know how to resist them. So when you get into a fight with someone who doesn't know how to resist them, it's relatively trivial to execute these moves as long as you're not getting your face pummeled in in the process. Uh, the other principle that I think is very important is that in order to be able to practice moves at full speed and full strength against someone who's fully resisting, 
actually as a caveat I should say it's not always full strength if if you're absurdly strong you you don't want to go knocking around your training partners too badly that is that is not good etiquette that's not cool uh but the point is uh you don't have a lot of kill moves you know if you're practicing for real like dim mock death touch and some of these other moves out there eye gouges and things some of them sound good in principle but so did circular movements for kung fu guys and straight lines for karate guys right and and they're they're not for, for the most part they're those guys aren't winning in in mma matches a lot of things sound good in principle but if you can't actually do it in practice then it doesn't count you know a lot of people will say if they ever get in a fight they'll just punch the guy in the throat and it'll be fine right that'll they'll win the fight there's a number of problems with that the biggest one is that it's not as easy as it sounds to punch somebody directly in the throat and even if you do, I mean, the, the idea that that's going to stop them is maybe not entirely accurate. Uh, but, yeah, so the point is, if you spend hours and hours and hours practicing punching people in the throat, then maybe you're going to be pretty good at it. But you can't, because, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a dangerous move. You're not going to have a lot of training partners if you spend hours punching them in the throat in the gym. So... This is an example of a move that doesn't count. And if that's your strategy, you have a bad strategy. If your strategy is to execute a move in the heat of the moment when you're filled with adrenaline and potentially your life is a danger, to execute a move that you've never done, let alone done the thousands of times that's required to, to really be proficient in a move, then you've just got a bad strategy. You need to learn a better style, man. Learn something that you can actually practice against somebody who's trying to stop you. Uh, so yeah, with these principles in mind, I mean, you could, you could go and you could, you know, to some extent you could recreate a lot of these styles just by keeping in mind that if, if you didn't have anything to work with, if you knew nothing about martial arts other than those principles, that you need moves that are safe enough to practice against someone who's fully resisting, then you would go pretty far towards, towards developing a, a fairly effective style, I think. All right, I think I've rambled enough for the first episode. Uh, thanks for bearing with me. Uh, check out the website, edgeworkpodcast.com, and uh, submit questions if you feel like. Uh, I'll have a, a link up somewhere, uh, a contact page where you can do that, or reach out to me at contact at edgeworkpodcast.com. Uh, I hope to have some guests on in the future. I'm not sure who or when, uh, but stay tuned, and I'll, and I'll try to get another episode out before long. Thanks for listening. Ciao.